Well, we are continuing in our study of uh, 1 Timothy, and we are going to be talking this morning more about uh, the elders and who elders are and the um, qualifications for elders. Um, This is a somewhat difficult passage to preach as a pastor because we're looking at this week and next week um, the qualifications of an elder. And I'm an elder, I'm a pastor. And so as I study this, as I talk to you about it, there's this big mirror right in front of me reminding me that I have a responsibility to meet these qualifications. And um, it's, it's humbling, it is fearful in some regards, but it is the nature of expository preaching because as we go through the scriptures, book by book and verse by verse, we come a- across these passages that applies to all of us It applies particularly to me and the elders of the church, but as we said uh, last week, this applies to all of us. So a little bit about um, review from last week. We looked at what elders, overseers, pastors, shepherds are, and this is what we came down to last week. Elders are a plurality of godly men who oversee and shepherd God's flock overseers. They're godly men. We're going to be looking at that this morning, next week, and then we'll talk about deacons after that. Godly men who meet certain qualifications that are really quite stringent, and their responsibility is to oversee and to shepherd the church of God. Um, Elders and overseers are a plurality. There's this shared leadership like we demonstrated last week, whenever you see elders, it is in the plural in the New Testament, in a church, singular, or a city where there was one church. So there is this shared leadership, which I am thankful for because there are other men that shoulder the responsibility of ministry together. Um, It is male leadership, and remember that Paul just came off uh, a couple of, pass- couple of passages where he was talking about it is, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And male leadership is the norm in the scriptures. And as we're going to see this morning, one of the uh, qualifications is about men having um, uh, marriages that are proper, and it will speaks directly to men. And it is pastoral leadership. As we said last week, we use the word pastor uh, quite frequently, but um, it's only, only, it only occurs one place in the New Testament as a gift of pastor-teacher. But the pastoral leadership of elders is oversight, overseeing everything that happens in the church, leading a direction of the church, feeding the sheep that is teaching them, and of course protecting against uh, false teaching that is out there as well. By the way, um, we do not have a certain number of elders. We don't have, uh, you know, uh, it does not say in our bylaws we will have 12 apostles or 12 elders or six or whatever. Um, We have as many as there are qualified men. Uh, We do not have terms. We do not have one-year terms, two-year terms, three-year terms. Basically, it's almost, it can be a lifetime appointment by, um, if someone accepts eldership. Most do not. Elders can take a break. Elders can step down, elders can retire, but we don't have a two-year, three-year, four-year term or anything like that, just so that you'll know. In our passage this morning, Paul is using the word overseer, um, but twice in this book of 1 Timothy, 
he, later on, he's going to use the term elder. He's going to say the elders, plural, who rule well, are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who, are, who work hard at preaching and teaching in 517. Two verses later in that chapter, he will say, do not receive an accusation against an elder, uh, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. The only point I'm making here is that Paul is using the terms overseer and elder interchangeably, and they mean the same thing. We'll get there on those verses, but at this point, that's the point. Shepherds, elders, overseers, we all have the same responsibility. So, with that, we're going to read our passage this morning, and it's just a couple of verses. First Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 1 through 3 this morning. If you have your Bibles, if you have some form of the Word of God, would you please turn there, and would you stand as we read the Word of God and give attention to it, for this is indeed God speaking to us at this moment. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, the Word of God. It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer, It is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. And God's people said, thank you. Please be seated. We'll look at the rest of that list next week. But what we're looking at this morning, uh, to begin with, is overseer qualifications. What are the qualifications of an overseer? What is it that the the Bible describes and Paul is giving to Timothy? And remember, Timothy is fighting against false teachers, and so he needs to hold the line with qualified men who will stand against false teachers. And last week... Like this week, I'll remind you that these qualities should be pursued by every man in the church. Every man should aspire to these things, as should every person in the church. There are qualities that apply to every person because we're talking about maturity, we're talking about spirituality, we're talking about godliness. And, of course, leaders should meet a qualification of these things, but all of us should aspire to them. So we're going to look first and foremost, overseer qualifications, his integrity in the first part of verse 2 of chapter 3, his integrity. Again, this is talking about maturity. He says, an overseer then must be above reproach. He said last week, if any man aspires to be uh, an elder, it's a fine thing that he desires to do. He says, therefore... It is essential, it is necessary that he meets these qualifications. He must be these things. Therefore, it is necessary that he meets these qualifications. Why? Because the calling is so great. To lead the flock of God, to teach them, to protect them, it is such a high calling that it is necessary for elders to meet these qualifications. It is the very nature work of being an elder that dictates that elders meet these qualifications. And above reproach is the first one. Above above reproach is the overarching qualification in which there is nothing obvious in the life of a man that would just obviously disqualifies him. So if you're thinking about some guy becoming an elder and you wonder about this guy, and your first thought is, 
definitely not. Why is that? There must be something in that man's life that would, that would be uh, a reproach in his life. Um, Andreas Kostenberger, one of the um, uh, um, commentators that I have been reading, says this. Uh, um, he is a man of integrity against whom no legitimate charge can be brought. A man of integrity against whom no legitimate charge can be brought. There can't be some obvious reproach in this man's life. The way he treats his wife, the way he treats his children, that he's got a bad reputation in the community, that, he is a, uh, that he's a gossip, that he uh, uh, can't uh, control his appetites for alcohol or food or whatever it may be. But all of these qualifications are going to fall, fall underneath above reproach in one way or another. And in some way, we're dealing with the idea of integrity. Integrity in the, the old sense of the word, that uh, integrity means something that is sound, something that is whole, something that is complete. And so a man of integrity who is above reproach, there is, he's airtight, he's watertight, there are no, there's nothing leaking. There's nothing that is obvious that is going to sink him. In the Old Testament, uh, the word for integrity was the word tome, which means complete or whole or sound. But we have to be careful of going to two extremes when we think about being above reproach because right off the bat, some of you might be thinking, well, man, who would meet that qualification? Who is above reproach? We have to be careful of two extremes. The one extreme is setting an impossible standard. That we nitpick men so much, we look into their lives, and we nitpick the details of their life so that we can't find any good men in the church. We just say, you know, there just aren't any good men at Valley Bible Church because when you look at this guy and this guy, we can always find something wrong, right? You can find something wrong with me, believe me. And with every single one of us. So we want to be careful that we don't raise this standard of above reproach to perfection because that is not what we're talking about. The other extreme is to lower the standard that God has set. And we would say, well, nobody can be above reproach, so nobody's perfect, so we'll just take anybody. Obviously, God has set a standard that we need to look at and we need to be careful of it, but we need to remember this. There are no perfect men, right? But there are men who walk with a perfect Savior. And that is the kind of men that we are looking for. There are no perfect men at Valley Bible Church. I am one of those not perfect men. And all of the elders of Valley Bible Church are not perfect. But we seek to walk and we are... We aspiring to walk with a perfect, perfect Savior. And therefore, there are men in our church, and many of them out there, who live lives of integrity, who live lives of, of completeness. Why? Because of Christ. Because of their relationship with Christ, not because of themselves. God is not requiring perfection, and so we should not demand it either. The other side of that is this, since God gave the qualifications and he's not demanding perfection, these requirements, these qualifications, they are attainable. They're reasonable. 
they're not beyond the pale. Men can live up to these standards because God expects men in the church to reach these standards. And he wants men to meet these qualifications and they can because they are reasonable and they are indeed attainable. I've said it several times before, but um, your elders at Valley Bible Church are not perfect. And when we look at all of the, the qualifications of elders, some of us do better in one area than another area. And some of us are more mature in some areas than others. What that serves to do is it balances us out so that uh, you know, the, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Together we are better and we, we bring each other up and we elevate one another and we balance one another out and this is by God's design. We are not perfect men. As Caleb said in our uh, uh, sermon prep last time, he said we are, not, uh, we, are, we are to be above reproach but not above approach. Do not put your elders and your pastors on a pedestal. You know what happens to people on pedestals? They fall off because we're imperfect and we are not to be above approach. You should be um, uh, comfortable in coming to any of us at any time and uh, asking us about anything or criticizing us if necessary, if if it's important. But we do not do things in secret And we do seek to be transparent in all of our dealings. But here's the thing. Above reproach, you think that's just for elders? Um, He's going to talk about deacons uh, in the following verses. In chapter 5, Paul is going to say to Timothy, he talks about the older men. He talks about the younger men. He talks about the older women. He talks about the younger women. And he talks about the widows. And then he says... Prescribe these things as well, so that they, all those people, may be above reproach. All of us. Older men, be above reproach. Older women, be above reproach. Younger men, be above reproach. All of us are to be above reproach. If you're a widow, if you're married, whatever it may be, this kind of maturity and integrity is for all of us. So that is the integrity that is called above, for above reproach. The second thing we see, and this is a general heading, in, in the second part of verse 2, is his godliness. Godliness. Godliness is a key theme in uh, the pastoral epistles and in 1 Timothy. So it is a, a key theme. Godliness is this idea of the outworking of your faith. Remember, at the end of this chapter... Great is the mystery of godliness, he is going to say, and we're working up to that. And it is about the conduct of of, uh, all of us in the household of God. So he's going to list a number of things that are uh, part of the godliness that is uh, required of an elder. And the first is this. He is to be faithful to his wife. He is to be faithful to his wife. Literally it says, one woman man. He is to be a man who loves his wife. He is an, an elder is 
the husband of one wife, that's what our translation says, the husband of one wife, the question is, is he talking about quantity of how many wives you have, the husband of one wife, or is he talking about quality, the, the quality of the relationship that you have with your one wife, men? That is really the idea here. Literally, as I said, it is a one woman man. There are um, a number of um, interpretations that have been advanced about this, and I think it's important that we go through them very quickly. The first is that some people say, well, that the require, requirement is that he must be married, that an elder must be married, because it says the husband of one wife. Obviously, we're dealing with male leadership here, but some say when he says he, it, he must be above reproach, therefore he must be married. That cannot be, because... Remember not too long ago, we were in the book of 1 Corinthians, and Paul extolled the virtues of celibacy and singleness, and he said those who are single and have set their lives apart to be single actually have more time to serve the Lord. So it is possible for a bachelor to be an elder, and that is not what he's talking about. Another thought that many have said is that what Paul is dealing with is polygamy, that he is to be the husband of only one wife and he can't have two or more. Um, of, that would certainly be wrong, but that is not the problem in Ephesus, and it was not a problem in ancient Greek history, at the, uh, uh, Greco-Roman uh, culture at that time. Also, in chapter 5, he's going to be talking to widows, and he says this, widows that we're going to take care of, they can be put on the list if, if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. It's the exact same phrase, the wife of one man. In, in, uh, an elder is to be the husband of one wife. So women were not polygamy or polyandry. Women were not marrying serial husbands, several husbands. Uh, polygamy maybe did exist, but that is not what he's talking about. So um, he's not talking about prohibiting polygamy. It would prohibit it, but that's not the point that he's making. The third possibility is that he's saying that a man can only be married once in his lifetime. So you can only be the husband of one wife. So if your wife dies, you are no longer qualified to be an elder. Some people believe that. I, I know a man in ministry whose wife died, and he went to, uh, to speak at a church, and a man came up to him and said, you know, so sorry about your wife dying, so I guess you can't be in ministry anymore. What? Really? That is not what Paul is talking about. Um, he is talking about the quality of your relationship with your wife, men, not how many wives you may have had in the past that died. And what about divorce? Uh, does divorce automatically disqualify a man from being an elder? It depends upon the circumstances. Um, are we to hold against a man who, uh, as a young man, was not a believer, had a short marriage, or was married for a while, and his wife left him, he came to Christ, and then is later married, and he's devoted to his wife? And do we go back before he became a Christian and say, you're not qualified to be an elder because you were divorced. I don't think that is what the case is. Our position, the Valley Bible Church, is if there has been a biblical divorce 
in a biblical remarriage, then it is a basis of uh, does this man meet the other qualifications and is he above reproach in uh, what remains. So it, 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 it depends on the circumstances. Obviously, anytime there's divorce in the life of any, any person, there are a lot of, uh, of uh, circumstances that need to be dealt with. The last thing, of course, is uh, what does it mean, men being faithful to your wives? She is the only one for you. She's the object of your affection. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Husbands, your wife must be the one that you are leading in godliness. You are, you're making sure that she's walking with God and living for the Lord and serving and worshiping, that she's part of the church, she's part of the fellowship, and that is your responsibility, husbands that she grow in godliness and beauty and service. And that faithfulness, when we see that in the lives of men, we know that man meets this qualification because we see the godliness of his wife as well. Ladies, here are two things for you, though. Number one, encourage your husbands to aspire to leadership. Encourage him. You know him, and you know what he's capable of, and sometimes he sells himself short, Lift him up, encourage him, and say, honey, you can do this. I believe in you. I am praying for you. And I think that this is something that you could serve in. Ladies, you play a key role in that. And I encourage you to do that with your husbands. On the other side of that, the flip side is this. Um, Don't hold your husbands back. Don't be an anchor that drags him because of your own disobedience or your own nitpicking or your own uh, carnality, or whatever it may be, follow your husband's leadership. Follow him, worship, serve, be by his side, be a team, and then let God do what he will do. But don't be a drag on him, and definitely encourage him. Now, let's move on from husband of one wife to the next view. And the next two qualifications are kind of hard to pin down exactly Uh, because the words are similar, but they have a wide range of meanings. But the next one is this, sober-minded, or our translation says temperate. Sober-minded, and that is, I think, a a better reading, sober-minded. This is uh, someone who is sober-minded. You you, you can just picture what that means. It's someone who's not given to excesses, both in behavior and in their thought and their words. They're not reckless they're not impulsive, they're not unpredictable, they are sober-minded. There's stability in their lives. And elders have to deal with tricky situations sometimes. We have to deal with, with people problems and shepherding issues that are sometimes really, really hard. And we need, to be, we need men who are clear-headed. And we need men who are balanced, who are able to think clearly about these situations. The next word is, is similar to it, and it is the word sensible or prudent. We don't use the word prudent that often in English, but that is our uh, English text that we're using. This is the idea of being sensible. You know someone who is sensible. You know it when you see it, someone who has common sense. And this is similar to the previous word, being sober-minded, but this carries the idea of just having common sense 
Um, I know some translations say self-control here, but there's a much better Greek word for self-control that Paul uses uh, of the fruit of the Spirit. And that word has the idea of being able to restrain one's emotions and actions. And we'll talk about that at the ear, at the end. But here, the idea of sensible means more likely, especially when it comes to making decisions. Elders have to make decisions on the oversight of the church and the direction of the church and talking to people and difficult things and finances and and many things. And elders must be sensible and have that ability to show discretion and wisdom and good judgment in making decisions. And you know men like that. That are sensible and they're good in making decisions and elders need to be that as well. The next qualification is obvious, respectable, respectable. Uh, the idea of respectable, uh, respectable here is, comes from the word for the world and orderliness that in this man, in this life, uh, the life of this man rather, it is obvious that he has his life together, that it's well ordered. When people look at him, they, they respect him for his deportment. They respect him for his words. They respect him for the things that he does because he is living a godly life. And it is obvious to those around him, both in the church and those outside the church, and we'll come to that next week. But respectable is part of that, um, uh, one of those qualifications uh, that is simply observable in a man's life and you know it when you see it. The next two that we're going to look at are kind of ministry-oriented. And um, hospitable is the next on the list. Practices hospitality. The word hospitable actually means love of strangers. He loves strangers. I mean, we have xenophobia today. We have lots of phobias. You know, people are afraid of strangers. That's what xenophobia means. But this is a Greek word that means philoxenos, love of strangers, love of people that you don't know. In Romans 12, um, Paul talks uh, about love being without hypocrisy, and he has this long list of things that are to be characteristic of all believers, and he ends with contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. An elder is a, a kind of guy who opens up his home to others, who helps others, not entertains to impress, but has people in their home to minister to them, to fellowship with them. Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. This is important part of the, the culture in the day when, when Paul wrote this, that um, if you're out in the city square and a traveler comes through and you, you see they're looking around and lost, you say, hey, come and spend the night with me. We don't do that in our culture, but that is still practiced in the ancient Near East, and that is the kind of hospitality we're talking about. In fact, First Peter 4, uh, Paul, uh, Peter would say this, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins, be hospitable to one another without complaint. In other other words, don't show hospitality begrudgingly. Well, I guess I need to have some people over because I want to be hospitable. No, you do it because you love people, because it's the right thing to do. 
obviously some people in our church and you've been in their homes, they have a special giftedness. And when you walk into their home and it's 15 below zero, but there's a warmth in that house that, the, that exudes from their giftedness. And that doesn't mean that elders and their wives have to have that gift. But to be an elder, we must show hospitality both within the church and outside of the church. And that maybe have something to do with evangelism that we're willing to have people in our home to show them hospitality, to show them the love of Christ. And the next quality here is the ability to teach. And this is the one that separates elders from deacons, that elders have an aptitude for teaching, ability to teach. He says, able to teach. I want to just borrow from, from Titus for a moment to, because Titus has a similar list of qualifications, but he adds this in Titus Chapter 1, verse 9. He said, The elders are to be holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. To be an elder, men, you must be a student of the word. You have to know the word. And you have to be able to communicate the word. And you must have, uh, an elder at least must have the intellectual capacity to, to know the word, to understand it, and to communicate it on, at some level. That doesn't mean that you're an, you have to be an orator. That doesn't mean that you need to be a preacher or a teacher or a pastor teacher. But it means that elders have some ability to communicate, the God's, communicate God's word. And deacons, this is not required of them. But along with uh, the ver our verse in Titus, we see that an elder must have a grasp of truth and a grasp of theology so that he can talk to someone who's in error and say, this is wrong and this is the reason why. Elders need that ability to do that. And that takes study. And that takes knowledge of God's word. And remember what Timothy is dealing with, he is dealing with false teachers who are teaching strange doctrines. Already two of them have been um, probably excommunicated from the church, and he is telling the remaining elders or new elders, you need to guard the truth. You need to guard the flock against false teaching because it destroys the church. And these other teachings that were coming into the church are coming into our church through the airwaves, through the internet. I mean, everywhere there is false teaching today, more than ever before. So this qualification by elders, by men in the church, to be able to teach and to understand and refute error is more important now than it ever has been before. And this is important for everyone in this room that you need, to teach, you need to study the truth and know the truth so that when error comes along, you see, this is incompatible with what I know, with what I've been taught, with what God says. And this is true for all of us. So we have seen these qualifications of an overseer, of an elder. Um, we've seen his integrity, his godliness. And the last thing we see in verse 3 is his self-control. Because I think all of these deal with 
self-control. Um, the, there are four qualities, qualifications that follow. There are actually five, but there are four that are stated in the negative. Two of them, he says, not this, not this. And two of them, he uses uh, words that begin with the, like our letter A. And some, you know, if you put an A before a word, like the word theist, it means someone who believes in God. If you put an A before it, it means not a theist, an atheist, someone who does not believe in God. And so a couple of these words are like that. And the first negative is this, not given to wine. Not given to wine. Our New American Standard says, not addicted to wine, which I believe is a very unfortunate translation. Because elsewhere where this word is used, it means not a drunkard or not given to wine. Um, we give everything a pathology, every sin a pathology. We have a diagnosis for everything. Selfishness, selfishness self-centeredness, which are all sin. Um, oh, that person's a narcissist. That person is drinking too much. Well, they're addicted. Um, well, this person is, uh, you know, has, uh, they're suffering food problems. Or, you know, we have so many things. We have a diagnosis for everything. And the problem with, with that is it de-emphasizes personal responsibility. And Paul is telling the, the elders in Ephesus, and he's telling us that we need to practice personal responsibility and self-control in our fleshly appetites. We need to be able to control ourselves, not given to wine. The issue is one over which the elder has personal control. So it becomes a matter of just that, personal control. Does he have the self-control? Let's be clear, drunkenness is a sin. But let's be clear, drinking alcohol is not a sin. The wine that Jesus poured for his disciples when he gave communion, when he poured that cup, it was alcoholic wine. No matter how you, you know, people want to say, well, it was diluted and all this. Probably not. Why, why then, if, it was, if they're always just drinking diluted wine, why is there a, a, a prohibition to drunkenness? Because people will get drunk. So let's be clear, drunkenness is a sin, drinking alcohol is not. And in this very book of 1 Timothy, Paul is going to say to Timothy in 523, he says, Timothy, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. For some reason, Timothy may have been an abstainer. He may have abstained because he said no longer drink water exclusively. But Paul gives him a little advice as to the health benefit of drinking a little wine for his stomach. So obviously, alcohol is not prohibited. It is the use of it. It is the misuse of it that Paul is talking about. And the point is, is that alcohol cannot be an controlling influence in the life of an elder, nor should it be the controlling influence in the life of any of us, should it? And what are, by the way, what, are, what other things might control us? Drugs, food, internet, 
looking at your phone five times uh, uh, every 30 seconds. Um, that, that is, uh, an, if you want to talk about an addiction, you know, that is something that, that people just cannot control themselves. Social media, video games, gambling, hobbies. There are so many things that can control us. And Paul is using alcohol here, alcohol here to tell the elders, you need to control your appetites. You need to control your life. And it is not easy to do. But by God's spirit, you can. The second negative that he gives is this, not violent, but gentle. This is the one, the only qualification in this short list of verse three, where there is a conjunction where he is saying, not this, but that. Our word is pugnacious, which that doesn't mean much to us today, but it means violent. Not to be violent, but gentle. He says, do not, not pugnacious, but this gentleness. Pugnacious is, is, an, is another one of these words that, uh, that, that means anger, most likely an explosive anger, a violence, an anger that is not controlled. This could include real violence. Men pushing around their wives, beating on their children, intimidating behavior. And you, you'd think that I wouldn't have to say that in a church. But it happens in people's lives who are not living a life of self-control. And notice that um, it comes right after drinking wine. He says, not addicted to wine and not violent. Anybody who's been involved in helping uh, 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 in any kind of helping ministry, whether you're a ministry or a social worker or a counselor, um, a first responder, policeman, fireman, you know that when it comes to domestic violence, assault, automobile accidents, and even suicide, in the vast majority of those cases, you know what the, the, the common denominator is? Alcohol. Alcohol or drugs. So, we're talking about having our lives under control. Men, women, each and every one of us. So, not given to violence, but gentle. That's the opposite of it. Elders need to be men of grace, men of compassion, men who are gentle, men who are in control, men who are kind and courteous, and they demonstrate it instead of men who are anger. The next one is not contentious. He says, peaceable, but it is stated in the negative, not contentious. God does not tolerate strife and division amongst his people. In fact, the scripture says he hates it. He hates gossip. He hates division. He hates it when people are at each other's throats. Instead, elders should be those who are out front demonstrating that we are peaceable people. The, uh, we are peacemakers and gospel proclaimers. We, are, we have the armor of God on and we are standing with our feet shod in the, 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 the gospel of peace. And strife and contention are the opposite of gospel relationships. The last one that he gives us that we look at this morning is not greedy. Not greedy. Free from the love of money. Literally, not a lover of money. The hand handling of one's finances 
and possessions is stewardship. And elders need to demonstrate good handling of finances, of their own finances, as well as the finances of others. In uh, 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10, he's going to say this, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmless desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, but the love of money, is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Money can be a hindrance to spirituality. Um, Oz Guinness, uh, in his typical humorous way, says, he's an English writer, says, if a man is drunk on wine, we throw him out. But if he's drunk on money, we make him a deacon. That should not be the case. Just because someone is good at money does not mean that they are free from the love of money. And we are to be careful of that. Money is not evil, but it can be a hindrance to spirituality. Materialism is a hindrance to, uh, to each and every one of us. In Hebrews 13.5, it says this, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, and I will never forsake you. Hebrews 13.5, learning to be content with what God has given to you. I can tell you, the more you have, the easier it is to be discontent, isn't it? It is. Tara and I sometimes marvel at what God has given us. We look around our house and we go, man, I can't believe we live in this house. If we, in our first year of marriage, second year of marriage, when we were in seminary, living in those dark, dingy apartments that we lived in, would ever have dreamed that we lived in this palace, we could not have even dreamed it. Uh, one of the apartments that we lived in was actually a garage that was uh, being built into a living space for us. And the whole time that we lived there, uh, we had a hide-a-bed couch, and we pulled it out. There was uh, the gas meter right by the bed, honestly, in our bedroom right there. We wouldn't tolerate that today. But it's easy to become discontent with what God has given to you and to be greedy and elders overseers, none of us should be people that are controlled by wanting more and more and more. People who are poor can be greedy. People who are rich can be greedy. It's not a matter of how much you have or how little you have. It's a matter of your heart and self-control. By the way, the elders and pastor of Valley Bible Church, we have no idea how much money you give. We, are, we want to be above reproach and uh, when it comes to, you know, your, your giving, someone has to deal with that and gives you receipts and all that. We have no idea. So please don't think if you gave some big special gift, you know, that we're going to recognize that and come and say, hey, thank you for, we don't know. Unless you happen, once in a while, someone will say, hey, I want to donate this amount of money to this. Okay, well, you said it. But 99.9% of the times we have no idea whatsoever if you give or how much you give. So... We want to be um, fair with everyone. In conclusion, here's all we need to know this morning. Walk in the Spirit. Trust and obey. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
I think that is the key for men, particularly. It is key for men that we control our thoughts, that we learn by the Spirit to control our words, that we learn by God's power to control our fleshly appetites, our decisions, our anger, our passions, the time that we spend, whatever we do, self-control. He heads the list with love. He ends with self-control. And I think this is probably the key for men to exercise self-control. Because many things seek to control us. But if we walk by the Spirit and we trust and obey, these are qualities of godliness and maturity and spirituality that every one of us should aspire to. Father, thank you for your word and these great qualifications. In many ways, they paint a picture for us of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we are seeking to follow and to be like. Lord, help us all uh, to grow into these qualities, and would you raise up men uh, to be elders, to be deacons, to be leaders of Valley Bible Church. In the name of Christ, we pray.